0: My uh, my father in law uh, consistently tells me that he's he thinks it's crazy and people trust me with money. Uh, right, the way I look. <laughs> this, <laughs> this long haired guitar player. Yeah, exactly. Long haired guitar yeah. player is like a general partner at this big venture capital firm.
1: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road.
2: <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
3: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole?
1: This week, Jake Saper with Emergence Capital. But before we get started, let's make sure he's tuned up and ready to go. Um, so first question is, have you got your guitar handy?
0: <laughs> um, yeah, it's downstairs. We can jam if you want yeah, to. You yeah, play. Go grab it. Go grab it. Okay, I will <laughs> grab it. This is fun. <laughs> I have to say, any, uh, any conversation that begins with music makes me real happy, so.
1: Perfect. So when, when you pick up a guitar, what do you play? I mean, is, it, is there a, you know, I mean, not beyond just the chords or whatnot.
0: So I um, I grew up in, in Austin, Texas. Um, and so my, when I first learned to sing, I was actually an opera singer. So I would compete, uh, go around the state and compete in these opera singing competitions, um, which was great because I learned how to sing classically. But growing up in Austin, you're kind of imbued with this like Austin Americana music scene. So folks like Bob Schneider or Robert O'Keefe, if you know those folks. But it's kind of like a mix between Americana, a little classic rock, and then some country. So that's like really what I learned how to play a lot growing up. And then as I got older, I started to like uh, play musicals and be in musicals and then play songs from musicals, um, which I still do a bit. And now I mostly play songs that make for uh, my friends happy and want to sing along to while they drink. So like it's okay, mostly like a, I'm I'm basically like a campfire guitar singer now. Like think of me as like a camp counselor <laughs> effectively.
1: All right, well, give me a give me a, a taste a, a few a few minutes or not a few minutes but a few seconds there of What's uh Well, I mean if you're if you pick up a guitar in the store, you know, what's the beyond just the scales? Uh you know, what's the first thing that kind of comes to mind?
0: So, um
1: it? I do, absolutely. Can't she tell you grew what it is.
0: Up in Indiana town Had a good, come yep. Never was around But she grew up tall And she grew up right Indiana girl On an
1: Your, your wife is going to say, I thought he was up there doing a podcast.
0: <laughs> Dude, I would jam all day long. Actually, like one of my favorite things to do is um, meet entrepreneurs that are also musicians and play with them. Yeah. So actually, like even during COVID, I, um, there's this uh, amazing guy, Jay Simons, uh, who's a friend of my wife, uh, who's a, an entrepreneur from uh, Atlassian. And he came over to our house um, last week and we had a dinner in our backyard and he's an amazing pianist. Uh he actually runs like a piano burning man camp. Uh, oh, cool. and I brought my piano outside and he played piano and I brought the guitar out and we just like jammed uh for a while and it was like it's so energizing. I get so much energy from those experiences and I feel like I really like it's become an important part of how I do my job, honestly, because I like I view this job um as fundamentally about human connection and building these mm-hmm. really deep and meaningful relationships over a very long period of time. And there's something about playing music with someone else that connects you in a way that nothing else in my life really does. Because you're, you're having to trade off and figure out, okay, now you know, you're playing, I'm trying to compliment you. Where do you come doing. in? Yep. It's, kind of, it's kind of a metaphor, frankly, for like, working together. Like, the whole idea is like, what are you strong at? Where can I compliment you? And then, okay, now it's time for me to step up and do my thing. And then like together, you know, the harmony means that one plus one equals three.
1: Extending that metaphor a bit, we often think of venture as the money men and women who write checks that launch companies. But of course, that's just where it starts. Good venture firms on Sand Hill Road and elsewhere are there to guide entrepreneurs, to accompany them, to use the musical metaphor. Saper works particularly closely with companies developing artificial intelligence. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But let's finish up with this musical thing.
3: Attention, journalist, you'll learn the
0: gist. Want my take on breaking news? We're broke without ad revenues.
1: The musical South of Market, starring, among other people, venture capitalist Jake Saper. It was a spoof on Silicon Valley. Um, A lot of venture capitalists would not be willing to spoof or to take that kind of risk. But but I guess with your performance background, you were willing to do that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, there's two things. One is, you know, do you have the guts to perform in front of, you know, your, your community? Most people, people don't, uh, right? And that, uh,
1: particularly sing.
0: One, yeah, that one I got over when I was young because I was kind of forced into it. Um, the, like, am I willing to make fun of the community on stage uh, was the bigger, was perhaps the bigger leap. Um, but for me, like, I, I jumped at this opportunity because, like, I, I believe that, um, we in technology, and in particular, we in venture capital, take ourselves way, way too seriously. Um, you may be able to tell. Um, I mean, people on the listening won't be able to see it, but I, I have grown out my hair to be ridiculously long <laughs> at this point. So, my uh, my father-in-law uh, consistently tells me that he's he thinks it's crazy. People trust me with money.
1: Um, this, this long haired guitar yeah. player
0: is like a general partner at this big venture capital firm. Um, like the way, the way I view it is like, um, I, I think it's very healthy to make fun of yourself just in general in life. And I think in particular in venture capital, I think that we've got, uh, it's so ripe for making fun of, I mean, Silicon Valley, the TV show was so good because it was so accurate. <laughs> right. And it was perfect. And the idea of setting that same concept to music, um, and then getting to play the uh, the CEO was also just kind of a fun role reversal for me. Um, that one interesting um, uh, little known fact about that show is that the the person who played the VC in the show in real life is the Wall Street Journal reporter who reports on VC. This guy Rolf <laughs> Winkler. Um, and so I, as a VC am playing the CEO, he as the reporter is playing the VC. Um, and it was like it was so fun. I remember. Um, you know, my 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 whole firm came to support me. I have an amazing uh, firm, and I remember I could uh, during the big VC number where I'm I'm pitching the VCs, um, and I see them all in the front row, and um, and the, the VC number starts with me pitching the VC, and then Rolf, the the uh, real life journalist in the show VC, takes his massively you know puffy vest, like you know comically inflated <laughs> course, yes. VC puffy vest. Takes it off, flips it around, and it's a sequined mess. And he does a tap dance number. And I see on the audience, my partnership is wearing to a number. All of them are wearing emergence vests, like. And so it's just like we're like, you know, making fun of. It's so meta. We're like making fun of this thing that is in real life in front of me that I am actually a part of in real life. Um, so I know I, I, I got so much energy from that. I really enjoyed it.
1: So in the show, you have to pitch the VC, but you, as the the character you're playing, doesn't know that much about what he's talking about. So he relies on, uh, you know, just standard kind of hackneyed phrases. Yep. Uh, uh, give me a, give me a few that that you know have been sent sent so many times that that it's just gotten tiresome.
0: Well, the so the phrase that a lot of the phrase that um, I used as I was talking was uh, I used the word synergies over and over and over again. Of course, to explain all the synergies that we have uh, in our so business model as well. Yeah, the paradigms that we're working on from a synergies perspective. (laughs) It's going to change. Change. And then we have this massive data set. It's really, really big data. You don't understand how big this data is. (laughs) And when you synergize it, it gets even bigger. By the end of the day. By the end of the day. At the end of the day. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll route back on that.
1: (laughs) That's perfect. So in real life, uh, your parents were both entrepreneurs uh, and started. Still are. Still are. And started. you started at an early age. Can you remember your first sort of money-making plan?
0: Yeah, um, I do. Um, because my parents make fun of this still. So, um, <laughs> so um, my parents, uh, my parents. you know, I grew up in Austin, as I mentioned, before it was like a tech scene. Um, and my parents were kind of early in that tech scene. They started a bunch of companies together, actually. They're co-founders. And, um, one of them was a, uh, a a company that made websites for other businesses and they made a bunch of the early austin technology companies' websites um, so I got to ride that journey, which was amazing um, and and really is the reason why I, I do what I do today because i've been kind of serving entrepreneurs in a you know in a different capacity through the course of my life. Um, the very first venture that um i I tried to make a dollar on and I think i made a i made a dollar on but not a, a ton more was um In central Texas, there's a bunch of quartzes, like the the stone that are buried um, in the ground. Um, And so I would dig out the quartz rock um, and I would put it in my little radio flyer red wagon and I would go door to door and try to sell our neighbors rocks. Um, There was only one person who would consistently buy from me. I named her the rock lady uh, (laughs) because she bought my rocks. And like, you know, it was, it my parents like always, you know, kind of laughed at this, that the, the lesson obviously in this is that like the woman wasn't buying my rocks because she could just go in her backyard and get the rocks herself. She was buying like the experience. She was buying me. And like the reality is, while that's kind of a silly anecdote, it's very true today. Like particularly if you're an early stage founder where you don't have a lot of products, like what you're selling is kind of the experience of you. And, um, And so when I think about funding founders today, that's something that helps guide me, which is like, is this someone I'd buy a rock from? Right. Am I, am I willing to buy this person and the experience that they're giving me?
1: I had a little red wagon and I got it in my head, I think from, from a book I had read or something. Of course, this is back when, when men wore dress shoes and, and back East where men wore dress shoes. And, And my dad taught me how to polish shoes at an early age. And so I I went around to collect people's shoes and I would polish them for, I think, probably the same dollar. But, of course, then, you know, I was probably eight or something, lost interest. Uh, And then, of course, I've got this pile of shoes. And so my mom is down in the basement polishing the neighbor
0: men's (laughs) shoes. That's amazing. That's amazing. so I figured, good for yeah. your mom. I mean, I guess I don't know if right. she's teaching you follow through there. Like, no,
1: she but, was definitely not teaching me follow through, but she was at least you know saving me the embarrassment yeah. of not doing my job exactly. <laughs> so, longtime listeners of this podcast will remember I talked to Santi Subatovsky, also with Emergence Capital, about your uh, firm's investment in Zoom. This the investment was long before the pandemic, and then the pandemic changes everything with Zoom. You know, he told me about the original pitch that Eric had made. where he he came and just had you guys download Zoom. So he came down without a fundraising pitch. He came down with a sales pitch. And he did something that was
2: pretty risky, which was he encouraged us to download the app
1: and start a Zoom call on the spot. And you know that those real live demos- Never work. Never work. Uh, Were you in the room on that one?
0: I was, yeah. It was actually- um, uh, right place, right time for me. It was the very first deal that I had the the, the honor of leading diligence on for our firm um, and supporting Santi in the partnership and doing. So I was there. Um, I downloaded the app. Uh, I was part of the kind of using it experience, and uh, it just worked. <laughs> like it was it was really easy and it was crystal clear. And uh, you know, all of us had used you know many of the previous pieces of software that just like weren't good. And yeah. so we sort of, you know, it was very early days for them from a revenue perspective, but customer love was high. And, uh, and Eric was an incredibly compelling founder with unbeatable founder market fit. Um, and the product just worked.
3: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car.
1: With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe.
3: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Well, and how daring of him, because we've all sat in on tech demos in which it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, I, I have TV cameras pointed at it, and you can see the founders start to sweat. And I assure him or her, it never works (laughs) on the first and here he got it to work the first time. And and, and and he still does it. I mean, just
0: just to build on that, Scott, like he if you know, he has pioneered so many things. But one of the things he's pioneered is the video analyst call. So so as you may know, Zoom does all of its analyst calls over Zoom, which is also, you know, a a somewhat gutsy choice, because if it if it failed, you have all of your massive institutional investors who are on that call. Um, but you know, he has deep faith in, in the product as do we, and, um, that faith has, has played out. So yeah, it's, it's, it's gutsy, but it's, it's worked out.
1: No one could have anticipated the, you know, that how important Zoom would end up being, but my God, did it end up being important?
0: Yeah, it's become, uh, I mean, for, for me, obviously it's been an incredibly important thing for our firm and for, for my family and, and for all the families of, of Zoom employees. But I think the more, the more important thing is like for, for, you know, speaking very personally, for my mental health, Zoom has been an incredibly important bridge. Uh, where you know, I can. Um, this is something I, I I have. I literally do. My parents uh, have these cocktails that they have in person. They used to have in person with their friends um, and and our rabbi in Austin. And uh, those have moved to Zoom cocktails. And now I'll zoom in sometimes and just have a cocktail with my rabbi and see like my parents' friends. And it's just this like, I feel for a moment like I'm not you know, trapped in, in, in a home during a pandemic. Uh, yeah. And obviously, you know, Zoom has been used for much more important things than, than a casual drink with your wife. No, well, you
1: know, keeping up with your parents is pretty damn important. Also
0: important. Also important. But like it, it's been, um, I am so, so deeply grateful for the work that Eric and their team have done to keep us connected. And like, I, I genuinely believe that the impact Zoom has had on the world's mental health this year is incalculable. No doubt. No doubt.
1: A lot of your investment is in AI. Can you help me kind of define the terms of what AI is? Everyone seems to claim that they are in machine learning and artificial intelligence, but I've never really been able to say, okay, this, yes, you are, or no, you're not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good, uh, it's a good question. And frankly, I think many people, um, in, in venture capital and tech also aren't able to really figure out what's real and what's not. Um, like at, at the very, very, very most basic, uh, you know concept, this is really just statistics, right It's correlating uh, a couple data sets together and seeing what the correlation is and then forecasting out the future based upon those correlations. So it's like stuff that you know we all did in undergrad or in, or in high school, but it's done um, iteratively, right where the, the machine is constantly taking a new data, running new correlations and then drawing new inferences or conclusions as a result. That's like the most basic form. And there's lots of there's lots of derivations of supervised and unsupervised, and you can make it much, much fancier, but just at its real, like at its heart, that's what it is. And the um, the learning part of it is that loop where it's like, okay, these things are correlated right now, and I, I make an inference, and then I take in new data from the outside world, and I run new correlations. And that if you if it's constantly, if it's automatically a closed loop. Then it's it is truly learning.
1: Um, I was going to say, which makes the data set incredibly important. I mean, bad data in, lousy conclusions coming out.
0: The data is everything. Uh, like in many respects, the algorithms themselves are you know continue to commoditize the the structure necessary to build the algorithms is being given away by folks like Google with with TensorFlow and other things. the The data is the data and labeling the data um, correctly and ensuring the data's high quality is is really everything. Um, For these companies,
1: one of your investments is in a company that um, suggests to salespeople as they are on the phone, "Hey, ask him this or ask her that or make this statement." I kind of see where this conversation is going, which I it, it just amazes me that that's possible that a computer could listen into a telephone conversation and then suggest, "Well, I think we can get the sale if we go this this route."
0: Yeah that's it's the company's called Chorus um and it's it is an amazing company um and the technology is amazing as you said like it who would have thought that we could get to that place and imagine i mean uh, there will be a world in the not too distant future where you may actually be able to be coached on what are the right questions to ask me in this conversation.
1: No, I was just thinking the exact same thing that, you know, based on the tone of his voice. And, yep. you know, I like to think that I have 30 years experience and can can do that myself. But but with a younger reporter in particular, based on the tone of his voice or or how he's animated when he a- answers this question, you know, continue down that route.
0: Yeah. So that's a, a really, really insightful point. And I want to bring in your 30 years experience because this is where it gets I think uh, it builds a much more optimistic view of the future than the more kind of like Terminator 2 vision that I think a lot of machine learning uh, has focused on or the hype around it is focused on. So our belief is that um, the optimal uh, setup is not you being replaced in this conversation with a computer who can ask me the questions. We believe the optimal thing is to take your 30 years experience and marry it with a machine who can help correlate past data sets and then coach you in real time on what to do. Now the machine would say, okay, you know, based upon the tone of Jake's voice, the the next thing to do is to ask a question like this. And then it learns if you take that advice, if you modify it, or if you ignore it, and then sees what the outcome is, like correlates that that outcome with, you know, whatever you did, and then makes better suggestions or coaching to anyone else uh, having the same conversations going forward. So in many ways, you are, one thing that my partner Gordon likes to say is, um, in the age of AI, humans are the key mutation engine. Ah. And and what we mean by that is that, um, you know, your 30 years of experience are really, really important because you have insight that a computer just doesn't have. And so there's going to be something that you remembered from 17 years ago when you asked the question this way that subconsciously pops in your head, you try it. And then, you know, it works. The machine realizes it works and then takes that insight and tries to coach other people with that insight. So in many ways, you are the mutation engine who's helping the machine get better. And as more and more people use the software, all of their insights and creativity are being factored in and helping improve everyone else's performance.
1: So a machine could aid me in my job. Chris Farmer over at uh, SignalFire has tried to build a machine that would help him be a better venture capitalist. Do you think that is something that is possible?
0: Yeah, there's, lo- there's been lots of attempts to try to bring in machine learning to what we do. But let- let's break it down. Like ultimately, you need great input data, you need great output data. And I think one of the hard things about getting this right in venture capital is the, is the time delay on one end and the yes. fact that the N from a success perspective is so small. Uh, it seems yes. like it would be so large, but in terms of the number of Zoom-like outcomes there are, there just aren't that many. And so it's hard to over you- – you can overfit the line – uh, you know, from a statistics perspective, to that outcome, if that makes sense, because there's just not that many outcomes like that, and it takes forever to know, right? So, like, what are the right input data?s How much of that is actually quantifiable in in true, you know, in, in a way that you can really lock down uh, and correlate with with an outcome that's in any reasonable period of time? That doesn't mean it's not possible to do. I just think it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, I think I think over time. Um, we as a community will make more and more, will involve data more and more in what we're doing. I think the, the team at Signal Fire has been kind of a vanguard in, in doing that. And they've got some early success, which is really exciting. I think the rest of the industry is going to learn from that and from other models to, to get better and better. But I, I deeply believe that, um, and this is totally biased and, and self-serving, but I deeply believe that my job is not going to be replaced by a computer, uh, in, in the near future. Um, I think that it will be probably augmented by a computer in the medium term future. Uh, And in the long term, maybe it maybe I'll go away completely.
1: (laughs) On the day that we're taping this, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, the CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, are talking with the Senate Judiciary Committee. And the Senate Judiciary, at least some members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, don't seem to understand Twitter very well. Um, so how would we expect them? i mean obviously, government has to be involved in a i in some way that that there may need to be regulation at the very minimum. They need to you know fund and encourage it and so we can stay ahead of the chinese but But how do we get government to help us and if necessary, regulate us in a i when it's such a complicated subject
0: yeah um i I think it is necessary. So I'll just start there. Like, I think that um, there, there are some things in government that they're, they're, the role of government is to um, kind of uh, police the things that uh, aren't directly uh, you know, controlled by the market, if that makes sense, which is like externalities. Basically, it's a price and externality. So I believe there should be a carbon tax and that's because the way the free market works is we're not currently pricing it in. So I think the government's role should be to put a carbon tax in and hopefully we'll get something like that with the Biden administration. Um, Similar with something like regulations around AI, that's something that isn't immediately priced in with the market. And so having regulations that can be longer term and aren't necessarily free market driven, I think is really important. Um, Exactly what those look like, I'm not sure. I would prefer that there be an agency of people who know what they're talking about. Doing this versus uh, you know the legislature and no right and to be
1: fair I mean there are certainly tax lawyers in the IRS who understand taxes better than the average Congressperson you know I mean that once you get down to the regulatory agencies yes. there are people that do understand some of this
0: I don't know but but it's a good point like I actually don't know Scott who within the government is the right regulatory body for something like this like yes really? uh, for the IRS yeah I agree they can write the tax law because people have been doing this for for you know a long time. But like who is the right regulatory body f- to, to weigh in on something that is so dynamic and new? GPT3 has different implications than GPT2 had, and so we need, you know people who are regulating this who are really, really sharp, uh, and who are on top of it, not like, you know long-term uh, folks. So, so I, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I'm not close enough to, the, to it, but I do believe I'd be very supportive of creating some sort of regulatory body um, with some real experts that could help us guide this. Um, I do think like if there were one rule that I, I would put together in terms of um, regulation uh, around AI and data, um, it's sort of the golden rule, for lack of a better term, which is, you know, the do unto others concept. And so one thing that, that I and I think we at Emergence believe is that um, if someone's going to harvest your data, um, the benefit of what they do with that data should come back to you in some way. And this is very different. In some ways, this is different than the, you know, the advertising model where you're kind of being harvested so people can sell stuff to you. Um, it, like back to the example actually before of, um, you know, Scott in 2024 doing this interview with a coach that's data driven. It's obviously harvesting your insights but the value is that it's co-mingling those insights with everyone else having you know, interviews right now, and then we'll be able to deliver those insights to you directly. And so there's a do unto others concept where like, you're getting benefit from the fact that it's, it's using your data and you're opting in. So the concept of, of opting in and ensuring that the benefit comes back to you in some capacity to me is like a, a rough rule of thumb that I'd love to see this you know, amorphous regulatory body that I hope gets put together follow
1: very One of the things that's important to you is is moral leadership in technology um We've seen some examples of that we've seen some le- examples of the lack of that. Can you kind of define what you think of as moral leadership
0: Oh, that's a really good question um, yeah so the the way I think about it is is um is leading with a code of values um, so the way the way I think about this is uh, you know lots of organizations have value statements very few of them matter um the reason why uh, they don't matter is because people don't remember them and they don't abide by them. The value statements are only as good as, um, they're good as a guide to individuals' behaviors. That's the that's the value of a value statement, which is like, okay, I'm in this situation and I can't go talk to the founder. So what should I do? And the purpose of the value statement is to help guide you on what to do in that situation. Um, I'm a big believer that, um, you need to create a set of values as a leader that are super memorable, so that everyone in your organization can remember them. So that when they have a decision to make, they can actually apply that framework. Um, so in internally, emergence when we were crafting our own set of values, we used this concept uh, that we called the pop song test, which is how do you create something that gets stuck in people's heads, uh, and perhaps is more pleasant to listen to than, than me playing guitar. But like you know, what is the like what is the um, the the memorable phrase? So you know, as an example. Um, our, our second core value is that we all strive to be your most important partner. And you, in this case, is, is our entrepreneurs. And that's a phrase that's memorable and sticks with you. And so if you're thinking about, like, how do I prioritize my time or make a decision here, that one will stick in your head. And so routing back to, to what leadership and values-driven and morals-based leadership looks like here, I think um, having a, a code of values that is clearly well-articulated and you are promoting and hiring and firing around that set of values um, I think is really important. And I think it's particularly important when there's a national leadership vacuum, like I believe we've had over the past four years. I think that particularly millennials seek some sort of leadership um, that they're not getting from their elected official. And as a result, they're looking to the most proximate leader to them, which is often their CEO. And so CEOs are being called on to do jobs that they were never really you know, anticipating doing. and um, And and I think many of them are stepping up. It has also been an extraordinarily hard year to be a CEO, even if your business is doing well, because you have all of this, the weight of, of emotions that you're holding for yourself, that you're holding for your family, and then you're holding for your company. Um, so I, I think that the most successful leaders that, that we work with, first and foremost, are finding ways to work on themselves. Like they're investing in CEO coaches, which we highly, highly support um, they're, uh, finding peer groups of other CEOs that they can talk to. Um, they're working with us, you know, as, as the proverbial shoulder to cry on and support and, you know, everything is, as this is a difficult moment. Um, and then they have the strength to then go and do the same for, for their employees. Um, so it's, it's a long answer, but it's something I, I care a lot about. And, um, I think it just creates for like happier, healthier teams and happier, healthier founders.
1: Send on something positive, and that is what it Are you looking forward to, or what excites you about about what's 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 coming? Wow,
0: there's there are a lot of things that excite me. Um, so I'm excited, uh, as I've mentioned, I'm excited about our new administration uh, and what that could bring, particularly from a climate perspective. Um, I am really excited about like a number of our investments, which I realize is a little silly, but like part of why I feel sometimes impatient cause I'm like, Oh, I see the vision this founder is talking about. I'm so excited to see how it plays out. There's a bunch of, of those I'm excited about. Um, I am excited about traveling again. Um, yes. And, and frankly, most importantly, I'm excited about like playing music in broader groups and just like being, you know, in, in a social context, going to live music, um, one of the things I, I love doing with one of my founders, this guy Rick Nucci at Guru, is going to shows after our board meetings uh, and like just you know experiencing live music together uh, and there's a lot of parallels to like how well a team can work together by watching how well a band executes together and uh, I have really missed live music throughout this, and I think my daughter and my wife are tired of me being their only live music so <laughs>
1: I think that's an excellent segue for you to play us out. Would you like to, to play us out?
0: <laughs> um, sure, sure. Um I'm trying to think what uh what would be an appropriate uh what would be an appropriate play out.
1: Put you on the spot.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me find uh so I think you'll probably remember the song. It's uh it's a good one.
1: Nick Saper with Emergence Capital. Our conversation today mentioned two other investors, Santi Subatovsky, also of Emergence Capital, and Chris Farmer of Signal Fire. We have interviews with both in past episodes of this podcast. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at at PressHereTV.com.